It's always interesting when I write something to record because it takes some time to get from page to actualization. This is because once I've written it down, my brain goes on to new things and I don't forget about the thing that I've just written, but it goes into a space where it's considered completed for now until I do the recording. Such is the case uh, with the first part of this podcast. It relates to thoughts I wanted to share and really relates to the pandemic and the polyvagal theory and things we can do right now to help ourselves and our families. It won't go away. In fact, I may even record it at the same time as this. I don't know. But as so often happens with these things, life happens. Or rather, there is a tragedy. Something that impacts us in such a way that we need to stop and put things into perspective. And for me, I utilize the polyvagal theory and an embodied experience to help with this. As we all know, George Floyd had his life stolen from him on May 25th. Trevor Noah, in one of his reflections, used the phrase that George Floyd had his life looted from him. Part of the reason that Mr. Noah used this phrasing is that for so many in the white community, it is the looting and the rioting that has followed the death of Mr. Floyd that has received the majority of the focus. It is seen as lawlessness and must be stopped at all costs. We hear our president talk about the need to dominate our streets and that the thugs need to be stopped. Please don't get me wrong, this isn't a political message, but it is one to help us understand, grow, and hopefully begin to heal. For some in the white community, it is forgotten that it is the senseless murder of a black man that started this, not some random lawlessness. And this won't be solved by us just getting back to normal. Tadnahisi Coates is quoted in the beginning of the book, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Menachem as saying the following, but all of our phrasing racial relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience that dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. Mr. Coates' powerful message here is poignant when we think of what took place with Mr. Floyd. Mr. Floyd died on the ground struggling and crying out from this embodied visceral experience of blocked airways ripped muscles, etc. Now this will confuse many from white communities because when they hear the autopsy, they will not hear about a blocked airway or torn muscles. But this belies the fact that systematic racialized trauma has on the individual, both that they, both that they experienced themselves and that they've experienced by previous generations and that have been passed down. As we'll talk about, black and brown bodies experience systematic racialized trauma every day that steals the air from them. 
As we hear from protesters daily, the death of Mr. Floyd is no abstract experience. To them, it is something that black and brown bodies feel viscerally. For black and brown bodies, this is another trauma added to the long list that triggers and sensitizes the, the nervous system. Recently, I was at a Target, purchasing some of the various and sundry things that we all purchase every day. And because it is the time of COVID-19, we were all supposed to be a bit spaced out from one another at the self-checkouts. So when I heard the Target employee caution someone that they needed to stay more than six feet apart, I naturally thought I was getting too close to the black family that was next to me. I was wrong. The employee was actually cautioning them that they were standing too close to each other. This confused both them and frankly several others as there were several families standing close to one another, all white except for this one family. The about 17 to 19 year old daughter informed the target employee that they lived together, to which she was informed it didn't matter, they were too close and this was store rules. I could feel her move into sympathetic arousal as this triggered her racialized trauma and as her protests of living with her mother were ignored. This is just one example of someone being singled out due to the color of their skin, humiliated because they were shopping while black or brown, which is something that so many individuals from the white community would never even consider how that might sensitize their nervous system. In fact, so many from the white community would think, why are you making such a fuss of the young black woman? But this was my second time in two weeks at that same Target experiencing that same thing. And I'm certainly not singling out Target or saying that they are racist. I'm saying this is an experience that is disproportionately experienced by a part of our society based on the color of their skin. And it lands in their nervous system. It sensitizes it. It heightens their awareness to cues of danger and it takes away their awareness of cues of safety. It creates a sense that a few white bodies that that actually few white bodies ever experience, but black and brown bodies experience daily that we must that they must constantly be aware of whether or not they, we belong. Black and brown men of different ages report incidents of driving, walking and or sitting while black or brown where they are stopped by police. Often when they ask why they're being detained, they are treated as if they are being disruptive or disobeying a police off, uh, order. Many times they are detained so that a white person can decide their fate if they have committed some criminal act. Each of these things plays on a long-standing distrust between black and brown communities and police and can trigger cues of danger for an individual. These cues of danger alone signal the body that it should be in sympathetic. Beyond this, the long-standing distrust between police and the black and brown communities can trigger the embodied racialized trauma that many of these men individually have experienced and that has been experienced culturally. This can trigger sympathetic and even dorsal collapse or dissociation where they may act in ways dictated by these survival states. At the same time, we are inundated with stories online in the news of black and brown families and individuals 
who have the police called on them while they are doing innocuous things like selling lemonade or sitting on a park bench or bird watching all just because they are black or brown. In each of the situations, had the individual not had a cell phone or recorded the incident, who knows how many of these inc incidents may have wound up differently. The fact that they needed a cell phone and that the white individuals were calling from their white privilege speaks to the racial divide that needs to be addressed. So often later, we hear the white individual discuss feeling scared and that they weren't racist. What is rarely, if ever, in fact, to the best of my knowledge, I've never heard of it happening, done is an acknowledgement of the risk and danger that the individual who was black or brown was placed in because that white person called the police. As white people, we certainly know the danger to black and brown people when they interact with the police, but there is never this acknowledgement and that is the very nature of the white privilege that is described by so many from the black and brown communities. Beyond these for many daily experience, uh, experiences, Mr. Menicum discusses how memories connected to painful events also get passed down from parent to child and to that, child, and to that child's child. What's more, these experiences appear to be held, passed on and inherited in the body not just in the thinking brain. Often people experience this as a persistent sense of, imminent, of imminent doom. He discusses this occurring through the following processes. A fetus growing inside the womb of a traumatized mother may inherit some of that trauma in its DNA expression. This results in the repeated release of, the, of stress hormones which may affect the nervous system of the developing fetus. A man with unhealed trauma in his body may produce sperm with altered DNA expression. This in turn may inhibit the healthy functioning of cells in his children. Trauma can alter the DNA expression of a, of a child or grandchild's brain, causing a wide range of health and mental health issues, including memory loss, chronic anxiety, muscle weakness, and depression. Some of these effects may particularly, uh, may seem, or some, I apologize, some of these effects seem particularly prevalent among African Americans, Jews, and American Indians, three groups who have experienced an enormous amount of historical trauma. Thus, due to the racialized trauma experienced by parents, grandparents, and or prior generations, an individual's nervous system may be prone to experience more cues of danger, leading to sympathetic arousal or cues of life threat leading to dorsal collapse. Again, as Menicum says, trauma hurts. It can fill us with reflexive fear, anxiety, depression, and shame. It can cause us to fly off the handle to reflexively retreat and disappear, to do things that don't make sense even to ourselves or sometimes to harm others or ourselves. These are the hallmarks of sympathetic and dorsal states. And without the healing restorative ventral energy, these cannot and will not have the chance to be changed, healed, and integrated. 
What about the other side of the equation? The white privilege that leads to the, the racialized injustices. Menachem makes several important points in his book that we need to consider to help understand this and to help the, heal the racial divide caused by this. The first point that he makes is that the first victims of what is termed white body supremacy in his book was in fact other white bodies. Menachem writes, while people from England, Spain, Portugal, France, Scotland, Sweden, and Holland had all colonized parts of America by the late 1600s, it was the English who controlled nearly all the colonized territories in what would become the United States in 1776. The 1500s and 1600s in, a, in England were anything but gentle times. People were routinely burned at the stake for heresy, a practice that began in the 12th century and continued through 1612. Torture was an official instrument of the English government until 1640. One can only imagine how the trauma from this practice perpetuated from one class of white people on a second class of white people could be embodied such that they experienced sympathetic arousal and dorsal collapse. How this could be written on their DNA and passed down to their children and children's children. Menachem goes on to write, for all their talk of the new Jerusalem, the pilgrims and Puritans were not explorers. They were refugees, fleeing imprisonment, torture, and, and mutilation. For white body uh, supremacy to be addressed, this generational trauma must be healed. A second point that he makes relates to the invention of race in the 17th century and its effect to create this white body supremacy. Prior to this time, individuals re were referred to by their country of origin. Race became a way to bring white people together and to separate them from black and red bodies. Menachem talks about how the phantasm of race was conjured to help white people manage their fear and hatred of other white people. In this way, their fears and hatred could be transferred onto black and red bodies. And this type of narrative is very consistent with sympathetic arousal brought on by the embodiment of fears, triggers, and trauma in white body supremacy. This also, as Menachem points out, requires a numbness to the deep suffering of a vast number of other people, which he ponders, was this numbness, this dissociation, a traumatic uh, freeze response or a dorsal collapse? A third point that Menachem makes that is important in understanding white privilege or what is known as white body supremacy in his book is a concept referred to as the great othering. In the book, Menachem discusses the creation of formal institutions and structures by rich white people that were then used to teach poor white people to help reinforce a sense that black people were completely unlike them. As Menachem points out, this was not some slow or informal shift, but a deliberate strategy that was carried out to change the attitudes of white people and draw the distinction between us versus them. As he points out, this proved effective in shifting the power divide from rich and poor white people to white people versus black people that we still see today. And of course, Menachem makes the point that this didn't end in the past, but continues today. My own examples earlier refer to the microaggressions that Menachem refers to in his book. 
They certainly aren't the only examples, though. Menachem refers to the number of practices from white people that fail to recognize the humanity of black people, including not listening or paying attention to someone or outright ignoring them as if black bodies were invisible, interrupting or talking over black people, not taking someone seriously, giving brief, perfunctory, minimalist, or non-committal responses, refusing to acknowledge someone's lived experience, either by denying that it happened or by fleeing into statistic or statistics or legalisms, acting visibly frustrated and impatient with someone as if his or her presence is burdensome or as if what he or she is saying is childish or ludicrous, saying, be reasonable, then demanding something unreasonable or impossible, speaking words of care or concern, but without empathy or sincerity. These words become embodied, triggering past trauma, both those experienced directly by the black individual and those in their DNA. They are cues of danger or life threat that are signaled by the white individual's tone, tones of voice, postures, facial expressions, the way that bodies are held and turned, the tension in their face, neck, chest, and abdomen. Many white people have pointed, out, pointed to Mr. Floyd's possible drug intoxication, history of heart disease, or the fact that he had struggled with the officers as reasons for his death. Some white people have even recreated his position with a knee on their neck with large smiles on their faces to demonstrate that they are fine. And that, as you can see from what Mr. Menachem has written, is at the heart of white body supremacy. At no point could they put themselves where George Floyd was at that moment, afraid, fearing for his life, face down, with both his own and centuries of racialized trauma inside of him, feeling a movement into sympathetic arousal and possibly ultimately dorsal collapse. Members of the white community speaking from their white body supremacy are unable to generate the ventral compassion that allows them to understand the experience of Mr. Floyd and why this affects the black and brown community so deeply. Instead, members of the white community are only, only see how this affects them and yearn for this to stop and return to normal where the rioting and protesting stop. Sadly, this sympathetic response has engendered calls for and actual actions of violence, as well as dives down into dorsal collapse, which has mimicked the num numbness that Menachem describes in his book as individuals from the white community see black and brown bodies and their allies' bodies shot with rubber bullets, tear gassed, and otherwise treated inhumanely. This treatment reinforces centuries of racialized trauma and is something that we as a people must stand against. If you know me, you know that I would never want to leave this at just identifying the problem. One of the things that we need to avoid is having everything go back to normal. Normal is a way of thinking, being, and embodiment that got us here in the first place. We need to find a new normal that helps us to heal the embodied trauma carried in black bodies and the white-bodied supremacy. Menachem addresses this in many ways throughout 
my grandmother's hands by interweaving both culturally focused and embodied practices that we all can engage in to begin the practice of healing. For some like myself who have white bodies, we may face truths during these practices that challenge us. Menicum encourages us to watch our bodies closely and notice what sensations, impulses, and emotions arise. For those who have black or other dark bodies, Menicum discusses that you may encounter certain information and embodied practices that help your body experience a sudden shock of recognition or understanding. Things you hadn't fully grasped before may suddenly become clear. This might be followed by a rush of energy in the form of joy or anger or outrage or a felt sense of clarity and rightness. Let yourself experience these sensations fully, but don't hang on to them. Let them move into you and through your body like a wave and then let them go. For everyone, there are polyvagal or vagal inspired practices that Menicum reviews. I would recommend that these practices be done with a co-regulating other, particularly at, these, at this time, for the benefits that it provides to our ventral vagal system. So I didn't start out trying to make this a review of the concepts in Menicum's book, but I felt that this was such an important discussion right now that I couldn't skip his important insights. I cannot recommend Menicum's book, My Grandmother's Hands, Racially, Racialized Trauma, and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies highly enough for everyone right now. I'll put a link to it to uh, a free racialized trauma course on the transcript for this podcast. Thank you so much.